Hopefully you've got your Bible. If you do, go ahead and open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We've been speaking a lot about the sovereignty of God lately because it's a major emphasis that Solomon returns to again and again and again throughout this book. Sovereignty is what we might call a universal theme. Understand that some of the scriptures that we're going to read as we work our way through God's holy word, some of them are very focused. Some of them are specialized. Passages like Ephesians 5, which instructs us in marriage and family dynamics. Passages like Matthew 18, that gives us direction in correction and in, in, in conflict management and forgiveness. Others like Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 show us how the church is to work together like a body to accomplish the desires of God. So some verses are, are quite focused, quite pinpoint in their application, but other themes in Scripture are instead systemic. They impact us on a much wider scale. And the sovereignty of God is, is just such a universal theme. The idea that God is in total control is by its very definition far-reaching in its implications. He is in control of everything. There is nothing that His will does not touch. And so if we hold to the sovereignty of God, it cannot help but impact many of the other views that we hold about life and many of the ways that we see life as we, as we journey through it. His sovereignty should, without a doubt, affect the way that we understand and deal with the instability of the world that we are in. And so the verses that we look at this morning will show us how applying the wisdom that we receive from sovereign God will fortify our minds and bring stability to the chaos of this world that is often so chaotic about us. And so let's look in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to study together quite a few scriptures today, verses 14 through 19. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city." Would you bow with me as we have a word of prayer and thank the Lord for what He's going to teach us through His Scripture today. Lord God, we praise You and find You to be at the center of everything that is spoken in these words today. May Your Son, Jesus Christ, be exalted in our lives as we worship You under the new covenant, Lord God, which is the fulfillment of the old. And I pray, Lord God, that these messages from the old would still speak relevantly to us today, God, that we would find such great comfort in the power of your sovereign hand, would you please guide us, especially if there are people among us today who are in the storms of life. Adversity has put pressure upon them, Lord God. I pray that they would see your great strength and they would experience the sanctuary that can be found within it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Lord God. Amen. So we begin with verse 14 today where there are two contrasting seasons of life that we are by now growing pretty familiar with. 
Um, he is describing them to us here again. There is a season of prosperity. The season of prosperity is marked by blessings from God. It is marked by good health. It is marked by <clears throat> little opposition in the things we are trying to accomplish. It is sometimes uh, signified by resolutions in conflict. Great peace abounds in these seasons of prosperity. There are a few major conflicts and there is much victory. There are also seasons of adversity. The seasons of adversity are quite different than the seasons of prosperity. Adversity seasons are marked by trial, by conflict. They are marked often by loss, by financial hardship, by issues with our health. Our frailty is set before us in these seasons of adversity. There is striving and there is difficult labor. There are unanswered questions in this season. And so Solomon is addressing the ups and the downs that every person inevitably experiences in life. But he is no longer simply observing these things. The first part of chapter 7 gave us many of Koholeth, the preacher's insights, into life as he begins to draw conclusions about life under the sovereignty of a God who sees all things and orders all things. Now, if Koholeth was a professor, he might say, this is knowledge, do what you want with it. But the author of Ecclesiastes is not just a professor. He is referred to as a preacher. And a preacher wants you to use what you learn specifically to the glory of God. So Solomon will not just make observations. He's going to begin now to instruct our behavior. He's going to begin to tell us that if we are faithful to this sovereign God, here is how we should live out that faithfulness. We got a small taste of that in verse 10, where the preacher showed us instructive wisdom as he told us what not to do. He said, don't waste your time last week longing for the good old days when you were in a more favorable season or an easy season. When you get into those seasons of adversity, don't just constantly wish you were out of them. <clears throat> and so in verse 14, he returns to this instructive tone. He once again gives us direction. God has made both seasons, he tells us. And they both accomplish His will, despite the fact that most of us are more fond of one of these types of seasons than the other, right? The fact that God made both of them, both adversity and prosperity, is not insignificant. It's important that we don't think of God ordaining only the good days of life and see the bad days or the times of trial coming from some other source. If we see God as writing the good chapters of our lives and and perhaps the devil, or perhaps man, or perhaps circumstances being responsible for authoring the other chapters of our lives, the chapters of striving and struggle and strife, then we may begin to think of God as being only half sovereign. We will get the impression that He's on our side, that He wants good things for us, but as trial and tribulation continues to creep back into our lives, we may start to slip into the false understanding of a God who wants to do good but isn't always able to do good. That's not the biblical God. That's not the God Solomon has observed in all his journeys under the sun. God writes it all. The easy and the difficult. The times of struggle and the times of victory. God intends for us to experience it all as part of his grand will for our lives, for history. And so God has granted you good seasons, good days, easier seasons. And how should you conduct yourself when you're in those particular seasons? It says in the day of prosperity, 
The right response is to be joyful. To be joyful. Now, it can be tempting to just skip right past this and, well, tell me how I get through the hard stuff. I already know how to get to the good stuff. But that's not really the case. We need to learn how to rejoice just as we need to learn how to struggle properly as well. So when you are brought into a season where God is blessing you richly, where you can look at Him and, and there's no end to the list of things that you are thankful for, then make sure you experience that life. Make sure that you laugh that you, you take it in with your senses, that you admire what God is doing in that season of your life. Being in awe and wonder of what God can accomplish is a type of worship to Him. When we look at our lives and say, wow, the Lord, you have done so much for me right now. I, I don't deserve this, but thank you for the, the way that you have brought kindness to me. Thank you for the relationships that you have put into my life. Thank you for the burdens that you're carrying on my, my behalf right now. Thank you for the great peace that I'm getting to experience. I know it's not going to last forever because life is up and down, but thank you for where I'm at right now. We need to learn to applaud the Lord God for what He does in our lives, to thank Him for overcoming. And we do that best with worship, don't we? We worship Him for who He is. We declare what He has revealed about Himself to us. We, we tell it back to Him. And we declare it to others so that they will see that the good season of life that you are in is not just the product of your hard work. It's not just the product of your intelligent planning. It's not just the, the product of your good luck. Rather, the worship that you express to God during your seasons of prosperity is a way to point others to the great things that God is doing in your life. When you are in this prosperity season, this day of, of goodness, be joyful and in your joy, share the joy of Christ with the people who are around you. He has not given us seasons of prosperity as a trap. Sometimes we get into the, the mindset of, I've just got to be obedient, and I've got to defeat sin. And that's good. That's absolutely a good mindset to have. But that doesn't mean that we're to, we're to labor through this life and, and kill the joy that's around us so that our only joy will be in in, in, in studying the scripture that our only joy will be in worshiping on a Sunday morning. Our joy is the life that God has given to us and it can all be worshiped to him. Every good and perfect gift comes from the hand of this sovereign God. So he's not putting joys in our lives to tempt us. God does not tempt us. He blesses us with good things. Five times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 2, verse 24 in chapter 3, verse 13, in chapter 5, verse 18, in 8, 15, and in 9, 7, we learn again and again and again this refrain, eat, drink, be happy, because God wants us to enjoy the life that he has given to us. It is clear that Solomon is making sure that you and I don't miss that fact. So if there is no conflict between a prosperity that has come upon us and God's word, if the, the thing that is giving us joy right now doesn't in any way conflict with God's revealed truth in Scripture, then, then rejoice in it. And let it be the blessing that God intends it to be for you. Do not, however, become so enamored with the physical and often temporal blessings of life that when the winds of life <clears throat> shift, <laughs> as we just heard outside... And that ease and that comfort that we were enjoying starts to blow out and the clouds blow in. Be careful that your hope and your joy is not in the expression of God's love, but it is in the expresser of love himself. 
that your happiness is rooted in the God who brings you these good gifts. Do not let the pursuit of the one season over the other be the dominant driving force of your life. Prosperity is not all that the Lord has in store for you in this unstable world. There is a day of of prosperity, a season of good, but also from God's same hand is the day or the season of adversity. And so in that day of adversity, how should we behave ourselves? The proper response to that is be reflective. Be reflective. Consider, Koheles says, be reflective. We need help with this because it is so contrary to our nature to sit and find the good within the bad. When we encounter strong opposition from life, our instinct says, fight back. Get what is good for yourself. Don't put up with this burden. Don't put up with this trial. Solve the problem. Or it says, flight. Run away from it. You don't want to have to deal with this pain or this burden. Get out of that situation. Go to where the paths are more clear for you. Go to where the skies are blue. Or it says, complain. Our nature often causes us to grumble when God doesn't give us consistently through life the easy season that we naturally desire. But we've got to learn to grab a hold of those instincts and put them under the command of Scripture. The preacher tells us instead to observe, to learn, to be led by the Spirit through these tough times. Consider the benefit that might come from this time of trying. And make no mistake, God uses our trials to grow us and to multiply our maturity. I was just talking with my wife who's homeschooling our kids and they were doing a a lesson in science about um, astronauts on the space station. And apparently, if you live on the space station for an extended period of time, you're living in zero gravity. So they have a complicated contraption whereby you get onto this piece of exercise equipment, it's like a treadmill, and they have to harness you into it and pull you down into the treadmill. Because there's no gravity, there's really no chance for your muscles to feel the, the kind of resistance that they would normally feel on the earth. And so they have to strap themselves in and, and work against this, this synthetic fabricated load so that their muscles don't grow so weak that when they return to Earth's atmosphere, they can't even pick their bodies off the ground because gravity is so powerful against them. That resistance is part of what makes us who we are. We need adversity. We need to learn from it. We need to grow stronger by it. And so, friends, as Koholeth teaches us here to be reflective, we need to learn to embrace our role as learners, to receive Jesus as your Savior is to submit your heart and life to Him, to be humble before Him, to be led by Him. That is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And one who has submitted to another must submit to their order and their, their designs. If God has put into our lives trial and tribulation, then we are to rejoice in what he is going to produce from it, even if it is difficult for us to rejoice in the actual hardship that it causes us. So do not pout away from God. When God brings this season of difficulty, do not act as though he has wronged you. Recognize that you are a disciple and that your posture should be one of a learner, that you should be ready to receive from the Lord God, ready to be instructed by his good hand. Discipline yourself to maintain the contact that you need to be fed as a branch from the vine. Remember what Jesus told us, that he is like this true vine that nourishes the branches that he intends to help bear fruit. But when we get into situations where life becomes difficult, 
If we turn away from the Word of God, if we lessen our prayer because we are upset and bitter, we don't want to be a learner. We want to know already, why are you putting me through this, Lord God? Then we are cutting ourselves off from the very source of truth that will make that trial a benefit to us rather than a burden. So stay connected to the vine of Jesus Christ. Embrace your role as a learner. Don't play hard to get with the Lord. Withholding your affections from Him until the circumstances are more to your liking. You know people do this with each other all the time, don't they? Oh, if you're going to treat me like that, then uh, you're going to see how I treat you back, right? We play the fickle, the fickle lover with God all the time, don't we? Where we think, well, maybe I'll serve the Lord, but not until God makes my life a little easier right now. He, if He wants to do that for me, then I'll do something for Him. Or, you know, I'm, God can't expect me to, you know, to, to be at service every Sunday when He's put this huge burden of financial debt on me. I've, I've got to work. I've got to go do what I want to do to, to fund the lifestyle that I desire to have. We play this fickle lover where it's, if God will bless me more, then I will worship Him. What an insult that is to a God who has every right to end our lives every right to let his full wrath fall upon us because of the sin that we have committed against him. The blood of Jesus Christ is such a precious gift to us. So undeserved and so powerful that it can work every sin out of our lives if we'll simply submit to the Lord Jesus. It'll make us more like Christ and part of that process is going through some suffering as Christ did. So as a disciple... Expect God to teach you lessons and know that they will not always be easy lessons. Expect to grow in Him. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. What is Peter preaching to the churches in Asia Minor there? He's letting them know, look, it might not be as intense where you're at yet, but it is coming to you. Ready your hearts for the persecution that is arising in the churches that your brothers are worshiping at right now. Be prepared for it. Do not be caught off guard as if God was surprised by this. Verse 13, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. The Lord God's lessons sometimes come with great sweat and great labor. God will put us through difficult situations because he wants us to know in some ways the suffering that Christ experienced for us. He wants us to come alongside him in a willingness to stand for the gospel in a world that is so against the gospel. If the gospel is what you stand for, the world will be against you. Remember James 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He doesn't tell us to enjoy the hurt we have to go through, not to enjoy the trial itself. He points us directly past the trial to the good that will come from it. Expect God to bring growth to us through the hurt of difficult trial. Discipleship is God's will for His church. And he has a desire to equip us for every good work that he has prepared ahead of time for us to do, says Ephesians 2.10. He has a desire for us to reach a full stature, a maturity that comes with resistance and hardship and even some pain. He has a desire for us to be more like Christ. 
You can only go so far with that if you're only willing to praise Him in the sunshine and you give Him no attention in the rain. Thirdly, evaluate what He has brought you through so far. We've already been warned against pining for the good old days of prosperity, but that doesn't mean we forget them altogether. Think about them rightly. Remember fondly that God gave those previous seasons of prosperity to you, that He was kind and generous to you before, and trust that He has more in store for you before too long. Draw from the affections that were kindled in your heart for the Lord in those times of blessings, even though that might not be now. Remember how much you were grateful for Him then. And let those affections be the greater joy that carries you through the valley of struggle. Remember the mistakes that you made the last time you had to go through adversity. When you struggled without the benefit of much experience, without the benefit of advanced discipleship, before others had poured into you, before you had learned more of God's Word, remember the mistakes that you made and then determined not to make the same mistakes in this current journey through the trial. Having this mindset through each of life's contrasting seasons will better prepare us to make sense of the seemingly unjust world that we live in. So again, the sovereignty of God is over all of this. He governs the good and the bad seasons of life. And He gives us instructions on how to deal with each one of them. So having this mindset through each of life's contrasting seasons will prepare us to make more sense of this world that is so upside down so often. And in verse 15, Solomon says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And so here Solomon's confessing that even his own life is, is as vain as the next guy. Though he has experienced great wealth and prosperity, greater than anybody else probably in his day, he also recognizes that that is not the thing that motivates him. That is not the thing that fulfills him. Though he be a king and though he has experienced the supreme expression of God's generosity, Solomon can see past that prosperity to understand that adversity is not only beneficial to us, but it is unavoidable as well. Prosperity is not the sole property of the righteous. Likewise, adversity is not exclusively for, exclusively for those who have earned God's wrath through their disobedience. So even if we have not seen, his, seen this with our own eyes, the Scripture gives us plenty of examples we can learn from. We can use the experience that God provides for us in His book. We don't have to experience it on our own. You might remember that in 1 Kings 21, we get a picture of the righteous man dying in adversity. We have a man named Naboth. And Naboth is one of God's chosen people. He's a man of covenant. He's one of the, uh, part of one of the 12 tribes. And in the... Fulfillment of God's promises, he gave the tribes land in Canaan, uh, an everlasting covenant with these people, a, a place of dwelling that they could live. And Naboth had a particularly beautiful piece of land, a place that would be perfect for a garden. And the king at the time, a man named Ahab, who I, I'm sure you remember us speaking quite gravely about in the past, and his wife Jezebel, desired that plot of land. And so Ahab was depressed. He wished he had gotten what God gave to somebody else. And Jezebel sees her husband moping around the house. That never happens, right, ladies? That's a pretty, pretty unique situation here in the Bible, right, where your guy is depressed and he doesn't feel like he's getting what he deserves. Well, Ahab is feeling that way. And so she comes to him, and she doesn't give the advice that a godly woman should give. 
says, this is, this is an easy fix. You're the king. Go to Naboth and tell him you're going to buy his property from him. And he doesn't really have a say in it. So Ahab goes and says, I'd like to buy this property from you. I'll give you full market value. And, and Naboth says, no, this is, this is not something to be bought and sold. This is what God gave to my family. I want to honor him by honoring this land. I want to take good care of it myself. God has put us here. And so Jezebel tells her husband, go find some despicable people. There never seems to be a lack of despicable people in the world that we live in. Go find some despicable men and go tell them to shout out in the, court, out in the courtyards that Naboth cursed both God and the temple. And when people hear that he has done this, they will take him and they'll stone him. And that's exactly what happened. Through slander, through lies, they caused the people to be enraged at a man who was only trying to honor God. And Ahab got his property. The righteous man, though righteous, did not see his life preserved through that. It happens. We live in a world where enough, enough chaos abounds and enough sin and its implications pour out upon us that we often see people who have good heart and mind experiencing great hardship and controversy. We also see in the scripture that the wicked man might see his life prolonged by prosperity. You might recall reading the first part of 2 Samuel when we learn about the earliest days of a certain prophet named Samuel. Before he began to serve the Lord, there were two men who were serving in the priesthood under their father Eli, a priest. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And if you read about their despicable deeds in the second chapter of 1 Samuel, you'll read about, or 2 Samuel, you'll read about how they would often skim off of the offerings that were coming in in honor and glory to the Lord. They would rob from God so that they would be wealthier men. These were a despicable example of people in ministry, and yet they endured for quite a time in this practice until Samuel was a, was a grown man himself. There are times when it seems like the good guy loses, and the bad guy wins. Solomon warns us that we will witness these apparent injustices with our own eyes. And though they frustrate us, we have to remember that we are looking at life in the middle of the corn maze. Remember from last week? We don't have that perspective from above where God knows where every one of these paths is going to lead. God understands how he's going to work these things to the good, even though we are frustrated and not see the ends, but only the middles. Now, I'm aware that good preaching should not only explain. Good preaching should also, to some degree, help you, as a disciple of Christ, understand the Word better on your own. I don't want Sunday mornings to be the one time when you are fed from the Word of God. I want you to be engaged in God's Word on your own throughout the week, that you'd be seeking this wonderful resource, that you would seek the love of your God through His Word on your own, in your study, in your times of quiet and peace. So I'd like to take a moment to address this morning a very common misconception, and it has to do with wisdom literature in general. In the Word, there are, of course, several different distinct forms of writing, and we call them genres. Genres operate on different rules by different patterns. Not all genres should be read exactly the same way. If you are reading the Psalms, you are often reading poetry. You are reading something that is put together not only to communicate truth, but to do it in a beautiful way, in a way that can be memorized, a way that can be expressed with joy in a congregational setting. So you can't read Psalms 100% the same way as you would read something like the law. If you open the book of Leviticus and you get rules 
and prescriptions for behavior, the law must be read with a more legal eye than you would read the Psalms. If you're reading something apocalyptic, you are looking forward to things. There's a lot of imagery involved. There's a lot of analogous correlations where you're thinking about one thing and it's supposed to remind you of another thing. When you get into historical narrative, you see history laid out before you. You've got to realize that not everything that happens in the narrative of the Old Testament are things that we should emulate. Some of it is dark history that is recorded because it happened and it's true, but we are to learn from its negative example rather than to follow it as an instruction to us. So these genres should affect the way that we approach the study of God's Word. One may see verse 15 as an indictment on the genre of proverbial wisdom. Proverbial wisdom is a genre that seems to paint a picture of life where justice is always accomplished in the here and now. And things always work out for those who follow God's law. One who reads Proverbs might come away from it convinced that if I just act wisely and do the right thing, my life will be blessed. And if I act like a fool and practice sin, my life will suffer. But as we're seeing from Solomon here, who writes Ecclesiastes, who also wrote a good portion of the Proverbs, by the way, it's not quite as simple as that. Proverbial wisdom cannot be read like the law because proverbial wisdom as a genre is not a promise. It is not necessarily even a command to you. A, proverb, a proverbial wisdom is an observation about the patterns of life that are true most of the time. This type of wisdom is closer to being a roadmap than an instruction manual. It doesn't tell you every step you are to take to get where you need to go. Instead, it says these are paths you may choose in life. And if you go down this path, here is your likely outcome. If you take another path, the, the outcome will very likely be different for you. Here's an example of this. Proverbs 26, verse 4, says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. What is that a warning of? That means know who you're talking to, right? Pay close attention to the audience. When you're sharing truth with people, there are some folks who have absolutely zero desire to engage with the truth. If somebody is lying to you and is, is trying to spin a tale and is trying to throw you off the path and they're obviously making things up, they're obviously speaking foolishly, then it may be best to just keep your mouth shut and to not waste your time trying to play the game that they're trying to tangle you up in. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But look at the very next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Verse 4 and 5, they kind of seem to contradict each other, don't they? Are we to answer this fool or not? And the answer is yes and, and no. It depends on your circumstances. We are in a, a genre that is proverbial wisdom. So it's not meant to give you a strict instruction manual that if you follow these steps, here's how it's going to turn out. It's to give you direction and guidance that may help you along your journey. This direction, this guidance comes from the sovereign hand of God. So we would do well to pay close attention to it. But there are times when a person who is speaking foolishly, who is talking off the top of their head, or is trying to deceive, and you need to answer that person. Perhaps there are younger believers around who don't pick up on the fact that the thing that person is saying is foolish or dishonoring to the Lord. You owe it to Christ to speak up in that moment and to answer that fool according to his folly. You do God great justice 
by being obedient to his command and setting that man straight. And even if you can't set that fool straight, setting straight the people around who are listening to the conversation. So there are times when both responses are appropriate. Therefore, this proverbial wisdom is also not some secret standard by which we see if a person is spiritual or not. Just because the righteous often prosper, that doesn't mean anyone who is going through adversity is automatically deemed unrighteous. This is the error of Job's friends, right? They see a man who's harshly, harshly afflicted by adversity, and they think, surely this has got to be the product of some sin that he has not made clear to us. When in reality, it is more akin to the verses we just read in Ecclesiastes, which remind us, Sometimes the righteous man will suffer as well. Consider the life of Joseph, a man who, faithful to God, had to go through trial after trial, and just when things seem solved, he's thrown into another difficulty. And at the end of, of that trial and travail, when things are finally coming together for Joseph, he's able to look back on that crooked and difficult terrain that he has walked through and say, what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. So as we look at verse 15 and make sense of it, we, we realize that Solomon offers no solution there, does he? He just simply states the facts. He points out the reality. But it is valuable to us because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. When we go through this world and we realize that there will be times, faithful brother of Christ, faithful sister in the Lord, when your life goes very difficult, that doesn't mean that God is necessarily punishing you. That doesn't mean that you are, you are experiencing an affliction as a correction. Sometimes it is simply what God needs you to go through right now so that you will learn. Sometimes it is simply part of a bigger plan, the details of which have not been revealed to you. Wisdom in and of itself doesn't keep us from all of these perils, but it is useful nonetheless to keep us from needless hurt. Since... Following wisdom is not 100% guarantee that you're going to live a perpetually blessed life. Verse 16 and verse 17 tell us, Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? This is some very interesting scriptures. A path here is being ascribed for us. A path through the travails of life. And on each side of this path, there are two ditches. On the one side, there is the potential danger of becoming too overzealous for personal righteousness. And on the other side, there is the potential danger of becoming so complacent with sin because it is all around us that we allow ourselves to indulge in it. I want you to note the similarities between the observations that preacher makes in verses 14. The righteous suffers, the wicked prospers. One observing this might make one of these two mistakes. One who is righteous and suffers might become so frustrated with life as it is that they might just say, what's the point, and, and, and drive themselves into sin. Or one who is, is seeing those who are righteous suffer might think, well, they just need to be more righteous. And they might pour themselves into greater adherence to the law. They might become so meticulous in their following of God that they can't stop to see the joy of God's grace. Sometimes this is called the, the golden mean, the middle road. And if you've ever interacted with Buddhists, this is often a big portion of what they believe in and strive for. The idea that you just want to avoid the edges of the bell curve. As long as you're not overly righteous, as long as you're not 
overly sinful, then you're, you're going to be okay. That middle road is where you want to be. Is that what is being suggested here by Koholeth, our preacher? I wouldn't be so quick to jump to that conclusion. There are all problems with the moderation strategy. Moderation often bleeds into mediocrity. We are called to love the Lord our God. How? With a medium level of affection. Is that it? With a reasonable degree of devotion. Is that how we're called to love the Lord our God? Or seeing the nailed scarred hands of Christ and knowing that he was willing to suffer and die for his people. Are we to say, God, if you would do that for me, then take my life and do anything that you want with it. That doesn't sound very moderate to me. That sounds pretty radical. Let's be careful that we don't take the words of the preacher here as an encouragement that all we need to do is go ahead and sin a little bit, but don't sin too much. Don't be too righteous. It's not really worth pursuing holiness. Just be better than the next guy. That's not what Koholeth is getting at here. He is pushing for something better. Moderation can bleed into mediocrity, and sin is, is not acceptable in small doses. Holiness is, by its very nature, an extreme endeavor. It means to be set apart. It means to be unique and different than the majority of the world, right? We want to be holy as our God is holy. So friends, as we read verses 16 and 17, we need to do our best to understand this as an expansion on what preceded it. In other words, prosperity and adversity are not determined solely by our own actions. God is sovereignly working in ways that we don't always see. So don't think that the solution to your problem is necessary, necessarily to strive harder, to try more, to do better work for the Lord God. And on the flip side, don't think that mistakes on your part are impossible to overcome. Those who have sinned but are in the Lord can experience the forgiveness of God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we are overly righteous, there are difficulties in that. One who is overly righteous, or to clarify, focused on their own personal righteous rather than being swept up in the righteousness of God, can often become like a bulldozer to others. A person who is constantly nitpicking at the problems in, her, in his brothers or sisters. So we don't want to become some legalistic tattletale that looks around and sees themselves as holier than everybody else, and so they're constantly putting others down. We don't want to be too righteous in that way. We don't want to be obsessed with our performance, thinking that our deeds are going to gain us more love from God and a better hope at future blessing. Wisdom will help you, but it will not save you or secure you. Only God can do that. One who puts an overemphasis on personal righteousness runs the risk of becoming a New Age Pharisee. One who is so intent on polishing the outside, the external deeds that everyone can see, that everyone can keep track of and, and count score on, that the heart is neglected. We see an example of this in a man named Jonah, who did love the Lord, but he saw this people that he was called to preach to as a filthy pre people, these, these Gentile Ninevites, not worthy of the gospel because they were not righteous like the people of God. And so he refused to go. God eventually got his way. But this man expressed, in a way, a, a hyper-righteousness that almost kept him from doing what God had called him to do. 
The one who makes himself too wise puts far more emphasis on his knowledge than he should. He is often quick to correct a brother even before he knows the whole story. A well-veiled pride is often lurking below the surface for one who boasts in what he knows. Does godly subject matter ensure godly pursuit of wisdom? Not necessarily. Is the motive for gaining that godly knowledge a closer walk with the Lord? Is the motive a greater appreciation for the one who has made us? Is the motive a greater reputation among those who are learned? See, they're different, aren't they? Is the motive for gaining more knowledge of God a better chance at winning arguments? Is the motive a reputation that others are slow to challenge or exhort? There are many different things that could cause us to desire more knowledge of the Lord, and not all of them are as noble as the others. So let us pursue righteousness, but let us not do it for the wrong reasons. Let us not put our personal righteousness on a pedestal, but rather desire the righteousness of Christ. We might find ourselves destroyed, spiraling into a works-based relationship with the Lord God that does not result in salvation. But the converse of this is that we should also not be overly wicked. Friends, we, we know, and we're going to see this in verse 20, which is coming up soon, that you will be wicked no matter what. That is simply the truth of being a fallen human being descended from Adam. So when he says, don't be overly wicked, he's not saying, you can leave room for sin in your life. You don't need to do that. Your nature has, has made it clear that, that sin is going to be a part of who you are. You're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to contend with that. But do not let that pull you away from the love of the Lord God. Do not, do not let it be a, an excuse to let you fall into a life that is defined and overwhelmed by sin. So be aware and, and look out for each of these two ditches. In verse 18, the wording here is a little difficult, so I want to sort of paraphrase it for you so you see what he's saying. He's, he's pointing back to verses 16 and 17. He says, It is good that you should take hold of this, meaning his first warning, the, the warning against being too consumed with personal righteousness. Grab a hold of that. Understand that, that there's danger there. And he says, And don't withhold your hand from that, that being his second warning, against falling into the, the ditch of wickedness and, and iniquity and letting your temptations draw you far from God's law. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of these dangers. In other words, what do we need to be concerned with? We need to be concerned with, first and foremost, our fear for the Lord. That in all things we are remembering this sovereign God is working His will in every circumstance, in every situation. Grasp these principles of warning and then strive for that road of fearing the Lord and following wherever He leads. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What, what contributes to life's instability? We see it all around us. Failing to fear the Lord, which precludes us from gaining His wisdom, which precludes us from living in a way that is orderly and good and pleasing to Him. Without His wisdom, we are trying to make sense of this mess on our own, and we will inevitably become overwhelmed in the process. Verse 19 says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And this is not an insignificant detail. Solomon tells us that wisdom is better than something. Better than ten rulers who are in the city. In a nation with a government as big and as influential as ours is, there is a tendency to think 
that all the chaos in life, all the craziness of the world that we live in today, that we've got to look to our government to protect us. We've got to look to our elected officials to keep us steady through all the chaos and to, to, to get us out of this mess that we have made for ourselves. We've got to trust the laws of our land to keep some semblance of peace and order amidst all the wild twists and turns that life can take. And without a doubt, Scripture makes it very clear that God has made provision for His people by directing man to form governments, by allowing rulers to rise up and form strategies for peace, for pursuing justice. Remember how clear the Apostle Paul is regarding to this. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1-8, through 8, listen to what Paul tells us as we're supposed to understand the role of government in the life of a believer. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. What are we looking at again? The sovereignty of God's hand over society. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So reflecting on what Paul says, in his sovereignty, we should understand that God has had a hand in putting these governments in place, whether or not you voted for them, whether or not you approved of these people being elected to their offices, God has allowed it to be so. So the government that you are under has been allowed by God for purposes, and the purposes are ultimately good. So to stubbornly resist our government or to refuse to see the blessings that God provides for us through the government is a mistake. While man-led governments are far from perfect and are an inconvenient middleman of sorts, though we would be better off for God to rule us directly and we will one day experience the blessing of a more realized rule of our sovereign king in our lives, for now we must trust that these governments are generally providing good services to us. They are adding to the order of life, not to chaos. They are not a threat to good behavior. They are a threat to bad. And so we must offer the proper degree of subjection to whatever government we're under. We've got to pay our taxes. We've got to pray for those who rule. We've got to know that God can and will use them to benefit the people of the land. But, and this is where we will end, godly wisdom applied in our own personal life is more beneficial to us than man's wisdom applied on any governmental level. Better than ten kings sitting on thrones trying to figure out from afar what their constituents need. Better than ten senators hashing out legislature in Sacramento. Better than an abundance of politicians debating the merits of different policies and laws is each one of us faithfully fearing God above all else receiving His wisdom, walking by it in such a way that He keeps us from the ditch on the left and the ditch on the right. Friends, we are not sovereign people. We cannot just rely on ourselves to find our way through the chaos of life, but we can count on the fact that God has divinely provided for us wisdom through His Word. 
cautions that guard us against foolishness. Experience of others like Solomon who have gone before us so that we don't have to learn every lesson in life the hard way. When you subject yourself to the kings and the authorities God puts over you, you do well. You honor God and acknowledge His sovereign control over all that happens. But much more important than that, you should be bowed to the one true king. You should put your greatest trust in the direction that he has given to you. Live each day with Christ on the throne of your life. Follow his law unwaveringly. Let the wisdom that he has provided for you stabilize your heart and mind as you travel along this journey in this world that is so often unsettled and chaotic. Though down and up and down and up might frustrate you at times, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Let your reverence and praise rest upon Him, and He will be the unshakable foundation of your heart. Will you bow with me as we have a word of prayer? God, we thank You for what Your Word is showing us today. And we pray that You would give us discernment. More than discernment, Lord God, I pray that You would give us a love for it, that we would desire to live as you have called us to live, even if it is the more difficult path, even if it is the more narrow gate. Help us to walk through, Lord God. We praise you that you are mighty in all things, and even when we fail to lose sight of this, even when we fall into the ditch of foolishness and sin, that the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, redeems. Even, Lord God, when we become proud in our own minds, when our personal righteousness is viewed by ourselves as much greater than it actually is. Humble us, Lord God. Bring us back to earth. Give our, give our feet solid grounding on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Lord God, let us rejoice in his righteousness and may the fear of the sovereign God keep us from being led astray by the many whispering voices in this world that would deceive us and rob us of our joy. And we thank you, God, for the way that you put us back on track today. Let your word be our compass. Keep our track true, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.